Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I am Trace, and this is a show where we take a big, confusing, roaring topic and we break it into little babier bits so we all understand it a bit better. This week, we're going to talk a bit about dinosaurs. I say it funny because, it, you know, Jurassic Park happens. Anyway, we're going to talk about how dinosaurs were first discovered and what makes something a dinosaur at all. We're going to hit up fossil hunting and talk about the economics of fossils. And of course, we're going to talk about cloning dinosaurs and dino DNA. Plus, if we can ever bring them back. And chicken a source. It's a thing. Over the next hour, we're going to dig super deep into the science of dinosaurs, and it's pretty amazing. So say it with me now. Bum, 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 bum. Let's kick into it. First, the discovery of dinosaurs. No one really knows, you know, like 100% when the first human discovered the first dinosaur bone, but we do know the first time that someone cataloged that they found something unusual. In the 17th century, before there was really such thing as geology and paleontology, most scientists didn't think that fossils were petrified remains of long-dead organisms. They didn't really know what they were. In 1676, Robert Plott, who was a curator for an English museum, found a femur fragment that he believed was of a giant man, you know, like a big, big human. In 1677, he discussed that find in an essay he wrote, The Natural History of Oxfordshire, and all the evidence that has ever existed about that pretty much goes back to that essay because they can't actually find the real fossil that he got. But it isn't a giant man, and he got it wrong, even though he was the curator of a museum. The plot thickens, so to speak. His name was Robert Plot. Never mind. He was the first researcher to describe and illustrate something that we would now recognize as a dinosaur fossil. And over the next hundred years, people kept discovering these things and they didn't really know what to do until at some point people put them all together and discovered that all of these weird fossils people were finding were part of the same thing. But we'll get there. Don't worry. We'll get there. In 1763, Richard Brooks reviewed Plot's work and he gave the fossil fragment a name. Because during this time, researchers have been trying to name organisms. It was a big movement in science to try and get a specific taxonomical system, a taxonomy of all of the different things that had ever been discovered by science. There was no formal naming scheme in the mid-1700s. So the 18th century taxonomist, Carl Linnaeus, a name you may remember from science class, introduced a binomial naming scheme. The idea is you take a genus, you slap a species on there, and then you get the name of that organism. So for us, for example, would be Homo sapiens. There's also Tyrannosaurus rex, the Velociraptor mongolensis. I don't know how to pronounce that one. But anyway, I'm bad at these names. But they followed this system of two names so you can specify every species. Biologists recognize the year 1758 as year zero for animal names. Any name in print on or after January 1st of 1758, that's considered A-OK. That is a valid name. Prior to that, there were names of organisms, but they're all just thrown away. We need new names for all these things that follow the Linnaeus system. Richard Brooks was the first person to apply binomial naming to what we would now recognize as a dinosaur, and he called it scrotum humanum. Pause for laughter. Scrotum humanum, and that was Plot's fossil. And eventually, that was scratched from the record for obvious reasons in the 1990s, and they gave it a different name. In 1824, professor of geology at the University of Oxford, William Buckland, looked at fossilized remains of a partial skeleton that had been unearthed in Oxfordshire, and he named that fossil Megalosaurus. 
That sounds familiar. Sounds like a dinosaur. In 1825, Gideon Mantell and his wife Mary Ann named an iguanodon after discovering large teeth in England a few years earlier. Mantell went on to discover another thing that he named the Hylaeosaurus. He named that in 1833. Some historians believe Mantell was the man who was primarily responsible for discovering the branch of the tree of life that we now know as Dinosauria, but it wasn't called that yet. It kind of gets overshadowed by the next dude because of his huge breakthrough. In late 1841, maybe early 1842, Richard Owen visited William Devonshire Saul's geological collection, and Owen figured out the iguanodon and two other large prehistoric animals were similar to each other, and unlike anything else anyone had ever encountered, Owen dubbed the new group of animals Dinosauria, or Terrible Lizard. And according to Professor of History of Science and Technology at Keele University in the UK, Hugh Torrens, Owen's key contribution was not just dreaming up this cool, charismatic name, Terrible Lizard, which they aren't, so Owen, come on, man. They're not even lizards. But, you know, it was also realizing that the Megalosaurus, the Iguanodon, and the Hylaeosaurus shared never-before-seen anatomical features and must be of the same type of animal. So I guess you could say that in 1842, that was when the history of dinosaur science started. And all of this stuff was happening, of course, in England. Here in America, North Americans were also finding dinosaur stuff. Dinosaur tracks were first being studied in the Connecticut Valley in the 1830s, and they were believed to belong to enormous ravens freed from Noah's Ark after the Great Flood. Because America. But paleontology wasn't really a thing back then, so they turns out they were discovering dinosaur footprints. So Othniel Marsh and Edward Cope, American discoverers, I hesitate to call them paleontologists, were working to excavate fossils in the Rocky Mountain region. And Marsh and Cope had a rivalry that has become famous among paleontological circles known as the Bone Wars, which is a really cool name. They discovered 136 new species in a very short amount of time. Their displays of their discoveries excited the world. Everybody had an appetite for dinosaurs. They were really into dinosaurs, Marsh and Cope, but they were actually more into the fame that they were getting for finding dinosaurs. So they kind of messed things up a lot. And they made dinosaurs confusing for everyone. Even to this day, we are still feeling the effects of their screw-ups, let's just say it. But we have to define what a dinosaur really is to define what those screw-ups really were. Example, flying petrosaurs, not a dinosaur. Nope. So what exactly makes a dinosaur a dinosaur, right? I mean, we throw the word around a lot, but we don't all know what it is. So a dinosaur, by definition, lived between 230 million and 65 million years ago. They do not have flippers. They cannot fly. Already, we've ruled out pterodactyls, mosasaurus, and megalodon as dinosaurs. They're not. Sorry, pterodactyl. Not a dinosaur. But the biggest defining characteristic of dinosaurs is actually something that most of us would overlook. It's a hole. Just a hole in their hip socket. Similar to humans, the top of a dinosaur femur has a little knob that sticks out of the side, you know, and it fits into a hip socket in the pelvis. In dinosaurs, the hip socket has a hole in the center, and that helps support the weight of the body onto the legs, which allow the dinosaurs to stand upright with their legs directly under their hips. They can walk around that way. This is different from lizards and crocodiles. See, their legs come out of the side and look stupid when they run, you know, like a crocodile running. Have you ever watched a video of that? Look it up. It's stupid and terrifying, but mostly stupid. 
There's no holes in the hips for lizards, but there is for dinosaurs. So no hole, no dinosaur. That's how we disqualify those flying ones, the ocean-dwelling reptiles, all of those things during the Mesozoic era. But there are a number of other characteristics underneath dinosaur that we've gotten wrong over the years, in part because of Othniel Marsh. Don't like him. He's a jerk. He ruined my childhood. You ready for this? Because I'm about to ruin yours by proxy. The Triceratops isn't real. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's not a real thing. Sorry, little foot and your friends. The Triceratops was discovered in the late 19th century by American paleontologist Othniel Marsh. He also discovered another dinosaur that he called the Torosaurus. He believed at the time that the Triceratops and Torosaurus were cousins. You know, like the Triceratops is, you know what that looks like. It's got the three horns. The Torosaurus also has three horns, but it's larger, it's rounder, it's more, whoo, it's more flamboyant. Torosaurus. It's cool. If you see one, they're cool. Enter famed paleontologist Jack Horner and John Scanella. They spent 10 years analyzing the Triceratops and the Torosaurus, and they looked at all their bones and everything that we knew about them. They cross-referenced those to Othniel Marsh's 1880s claims, and they figured out that the Torosaurus is like the adult version of the Triceratops. So Triceratops no longer exists. They're just teenage Torosauri, Torosauruses. It's sad but it's true. Now I'm going to ruin the brontosaurus as well. Don't shake your head at me, Matt. (laughs) I know how sad you are. In 1877, Othniel Marsh discovered the partial skeleton of a long-necked, long-tailed, leaf-eating dinosaur. He named this dinosaur the Apatosaurus, but he didn't have a skull for the Apatosaurus. He just had a lot of the other bones. And so in 1883, when Marsh wanted to reconstruct the Apatosaurus, he was just like, give me a skull. I don't care. I don't care what skull it is. A few years later, his fossil collector sent Marsh a second skeleton that he thought was for a different dinosaur that he named the Brontosaurus. But it wasn't a Brontosaurus. It was just an Apatosaurus that actually had the right skull on it, maybe, or it was basically more complete. You know, it gave more information. However, Marsh was quick to say, look, a new species, look, a new species, which we've now seen with the Torosaurus and the Triceratops, the Brontosaurus and the Apatosaurus. So they were all like, Brontosaurus, that ain't real. And scientists pretty much knew that uh, just a few years later, in 1903. But the public was totally into the Brontosaurus. They loved it. So nobody really said anything until Carnegie researchers set the record straight in 1970. Of course, then in 1989, the U.S. Postal Service published a 25-cent stamp with the Brontosaurus on it. Screwed that up, USPS. In the movie Jurassic Park, Nedry steals dinosaur embryos, and one of them is a brontosaurus, even though it didn't even exist. The Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh topped its apatosaurus skeleton with the wrong head from 1932 until 1979. And the Carnegie researchers were the one who were setting the record straight in 1970. This is bad. Brontosaurus is just a mess of a dinosaur. However, new research says it's back. What, what? It's actually just renamed. Don't worry about it. You can look it up. Brontosaurus, not real the way you're thinking of it. Here's a few more just real quick to ruin your childhood for a few more times. Stegosaurus plates were not for defense. They were likely used for sexual mate gathering. You know, they were just for show. They were showing off, says Kenneth Carpenter, director of the USU Eastern Prehistoric Museum in Utah. He says, showing off, species recognition, attracting mates, that sort of thing. Velociraptors, not huge, ultra-smart hunters going through kitchens and seeing their own reflections. No, 
They had the size of a dog and had feathers. They were tiny little things. Cute. T-Rex didn't drag its tail around like a tripod and probably also had feathers during most of its life. You can see a chicken walking with an artificial tail. It looks just like what we would think a T-Rex would walk like. You can go on YouTube and look up chicken walking with artificial tail. That is basically what a T-Rex would have walked around like. And how do all these confusions happen? Let me tell you. The Bone Wars in Montana in 1877. Othniel Marsh versus Edward Cope. We're still feeling this today. They were fighting about who could find the most fossils. Not the most dinosaurs, not the best dinosaurs, not the best fossils, just the most fossils. And this rushed work, like most things in science that are rushed, caused all sorts of problems. When you find a dinosaur fossil, you're out in the field and you're, you know, you can dig really deep at first because they're way down there, 65 million years down. But once you get down there, you know, time has not been kind to organic material like bones. Most skeletons are not found in one piece. It's not a picture of a whole thing. It's just fragments. It's just chunks. Most of the dinosaur skeletons you see in museums are mixes of bone fragments and reconstructed parts so that you can show what the whole thing looks like. You find it in small chunks or even just a few bones. Most of the time, paleontologists are just using brushes to brush dirt away from the fossils to try and find the one piece that is important. And then they cover them up with plaster so they can move them somewhere else where they can actually chip away the rock from the bone. They just get little bits, little pieces of whole skeletons. They never see the full picture when they just dig it up. But that's no fun. So when you're rushing like Marsh and Cope were doing to try and compete with each other, they weren't exactly doing their due scientific diligence. And that's why... We have all these problems today. But in the end, dinosaurs are very specific. They have a very specific definition. They don't fly. They don't swim. Well, with flippers anyway. And they don't do that. That's science for you, though. It evolves. It's a group effort. At some point, we all have to decide this is and this isn't. Sorry, Pluto. People present better theories over time. New tools, new technologies become available. That's what makes science so great. We're finding more fossils now than ever before, and not because science has such great funding, because let me tell you, it doesn't. There's always been a public interest in dinosaurs because they live in our imaginations. We've never seen them, and they existed so long ago, and they're so big that we just all love thinking about how amazing it must have been to be in their midst, right? There have always been, because of that, private fossil collectors. You know, people who funded digs in order to get those fossils, whether... They were, you know, gentlemen scientists or people who just genuinely wanted fossils. If you were wealthy enough, you could go out and dig them up. And that seems to be on an upswing now. We're actually getting more and more people privately funding digs. And it's expensive. You know, you have to house the people who are digging. You have to find the spot, which requires research. You have to, you know, give those people food. You have to pay them for their time. And you also have to fund the research to then take the things that you found while digging and turn them into something you could show off. And a lot of people believe that the reason it seems to be on an upswing is the movie Jurassic Park. You know, I think people like Nicolas Cage and Harrison Ford are rumored to have cool dinosaur collections. Full disclosure, we work for a company named Discovery. Discovery's world headquarters in Maryland has a T-Rex in the lobby. We bought that. 
Hey guys, I'm just going to jump right in here from the future and say, yes, this was recorded in 2015. At the time, we did work for Discovery and their HQ was in Maryland, though now we don't anymore and their HQ is actually moving. I don't know what happened to old Rexy, but I digress. I hope you're enjoying the episode. I'm sorry I ruined the flow. Go ahead and kick back into it. Google has a T-Rex on their campus. They bought that. You know, those are things that people love to have around because they convey all of this meaning just by sitting there next to you, right? And the rights to dig for these things vary from place to place, and they can get a little complicated. In the United States and most countries, they say you cannot excavate or sell vertebrate fossils from public property without a special permit. You have to go get a permit to dig up a fossil. Unless it's an invertebrate, you know, like a shell on the beach, that's fine. But vertebrate fossils, that's completely different. Permits are usually only granted to accredited institutions, universities, and museums for the public good. And they are never granted to unaffiliated individuals. Usually. In China and Argentina, however, no fossils at all can be collected without a permit. And none of the fossils collected in China or Argentina can leave the country, legally speaking. In the U.S., fossils collected on private land, though, that's not government land, they can be sold by the rightful owner of the land. And that can cause problems for museums because that can drive up the price for fossils. Previously, if you wanted a fossil and say you were, you know, the Museum of Natural History, you wanted a fossil, you would have to fund a paleontologist and their team to go and get a fossil in a place where you probably knew there were fossils around. Now, private companies or private groups, even private citizens can compete with you to go and get that fossil. That drives the price up for the dig, but it also drives the price up if someone else digs it up and now you have to buy it. In 2013, two preserved skeletons that were posed in epic battle were found. They were actually previously unknown species, the Nanotyrannus lysensis, which is a type of pygmy T-Rex, and a Chasmosaurian ceratopsian, which is a relative of the Triceratops. They were marketed by saying things like, teeth from the predator were embedded in the neck and back of the plant eater. The T-Rex's chest and skull were crushed as though the ceratopsian had delivered a kick from the side. That's pretty exciting stuff. And if you can market it that way to your museum goers, you're going to get more people to come into your museum. And you can also learn about battles, not just from movies, of these real-life animals. This was unearthed, however, on private property at a ranch in Hell Creek, Montana, and the law says the property owners get that fossil. They own it. The seller offered to sell it to the Smithsonian and the American Museum of Natural History in New York. But the New York Times reported the museums backed away because the price of the fossil was set between seven and nine million dollars. How did it get that valuation? Because people had started to sell them. The first dinosaur fossil auctions went for millions of dollars, so now people knew that it was a commodity and they would fund private ventures to go out and dig them up so they could sell them. You can go on eBay right now and you can actually find dinosaur fossils. The problem is most people purchasing those fossils don't really care if their T-Rex tooth came from someone's backyard or from a place in China where it's illegal to export it and sell it. So for example, there's a really crazy story. This guy whose last name I can't entirely pronounce, Procopy, I think, Eric Procopy. In May of 2012, Procopy attempted to auction a Tarbosaurus skeleton 
which was discovered in the Gobi Desert. He tried to auction it for $1 million US. He'd been doing this for a while. This wasn't his first rodeo. He was smuggling dino fossils he found in Mongolia back into the US, then he would auction them off and make a bunch of money. The Mongolian president heard about this auction and he filed a complaint with the United States because Mongolia does not allow the export of these fossils. October of 2012, federal agents showed up and arrested Prokopi in his Gainesville, Florida home. They seized 400 pounds of fossils from him, obtained pictures of him digging up and removing the dinosaur bones from Mongolia, and of course, since the law in Mongolia prohibits the commercialization of natural history at all, not just like export, but you can't sell fossils, and that's been a law since 1924. Why don't we have that law? That's crazy. In fact, the Mongolian government says if you find a dinosaur fossil anywhere in the country, it belongs to the people of Mongolia. Prokopi was arrested. Prokopi wrote on his customs claims forms when he was bringing in these illegal fossils, this is a bunch of broken old bones and lizards I'm shipping from the Great Britain, and it's worth $15,000. That's a quote. Of course, some good came out of Prokopi's greed. He was facing possibly 17 years in prison, and Eric Prokopi stopped defending himself and switched strategies. Instead of saying these dinosaur bones are, you know, whatever, there's broken old bones. He started talking. He started saying, hey, law enforcement, this is how the fossil trade works. Martin Bell, an assistant U.S. attorney, says that there's probably not an active fossil investigation at this point that doesn't owe something on some level to information that Mr. Prokopi had furnished to law enforcement. That's pretty cool. He kind of flipped on him. And now over 18 mostly semi-complete and fully complete dinosaur fossils have been returned to Mongolia because of their help. Enough to populate a whole new dinosaur museum in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia, and it now stands as the central museum of Mongolian dinosaurs. So even though kind of a shady character, Prokopi did eventually kind of right his wrongs, I guess. He helped get those dinosaurs back to Mongolia indirectly. The thing is, these dinosaur bones are so appreciated by so many people, and now that they've started selling them, there's an economic benefit to fossils. And that's crazy, because someone paid for the rights to dig on land and then sued the diggers when the fossil was found, knowing that they would be able to make money in the sale. You can actually listen to that story over on Planet Money, one of my favorite podcasts. They're awesome. This is not a paid promotion. I'm just saying it. I just really like NPR's Planet Money, but they have a whole thing just about the economics of fossils, of specifically dinosaur fossils. Really, really cool. But here's the thing. Regardless of how you feel about private citizens and groups digging up dinosaur fossils, you know, to gain riches and then dig up more fossils and gain more riches, a lot of fossils would go undiscovered. You know, people will say, this is bad. People will say this is good. But in the end, there are more fossils being dug up now, more research opportunities being created because we're digging up so much more information about these species. And in this case, Eric Prokopi, even though he's kind of a scumbag, the events of his capture and eventual kind of flip funded an entire museum worth of fossils for the people of Mongolia. So that's kind of cool. Science needs to study these. They need to know more about the dinosaurs because, as you know, dinosaurs are dead. The more fossils we have, the more we can learn about it. The more we can learn about it, the more we know how they died, the more we know what the earth was like. 
you know, millions of years ago. And dinosaurs are never, ever coming back, ever. We've all heard different theories about how dinosaurs met their end, but they met their end so long ago that you're never going to see a clone. So what happened is essentially this. 65 million years ago, the most prevalent extinction theory is that something hit the Earth, a cosmic impact. This is at the end of the Cretaceous, or what's called the Cretaceous Tertiary Extinction Event, often known as KT. At the end of the KT, all that was left was birds. The big dinosaurs, they ran out of food. They didn't have anything to eat because everything was dead. The only thing that could survive were small scavengers, which didn't need a lot of food. And of course, uh, the ancestors of us mammals, you know, we were there as well. But birds, which could fly and survey for food, they survived. And the little teeny scavengers, which could run around and like eat, survive on just little bits of food. That's why creatures are smaller today than they were pre-dinosaur. You know, they didn't have chances to evolve into these giant creatures again. The idea of a cosmic impact is essentially coming down to either a comet or an asteroid hit us. That was first proposed by physicist Luis Alvarez and his son, geologist Walter Alvarez. Scientists found today signs of this collision, and they think it was near the town of Chicxulub in Mexico. It's a gargantuan crater more than 110 miles wide. That's huge. The explosion, if that was the one, would have released as much energy as 100 trillion tons of TNT, more than a billion times more powerful than the atom bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's a huge explosion. An explosion like that changes the face of the planet. Of course, this is science, so there's controversy over the timing of the Chicxulub impact. Findings using high-precision radiometric dating analysis of the debris from the impact show that the KT event and the Chicxulub collision happened no more than about 33,000 years apart. That's pretty close, geologically speaking, over millions of years, right? According to geochronologist and director of the Berkeley Geochronology Center in California, Paul Rene, we've shown the impact and the mass extinction coincided as much as one can possibly demonstrate with existing dating techniques. It's gratifying to see these results for those of us who have been arguing for a long time that there was an impact at the time of the KT mass extinction. It, of course, could be said that the cosmic impact and the mass extinction only coincided and they weren't the 100% of the story. Obviously, there are other reasons that the life on Earth that existed at that time could have died. A study led by geologists from Princeton uh, report that there were precise dates for these uh, Deccan traps in India. They were basically mountain-high piles of basalt lava flows, which could cover as much area as the entire country of France that was 66 million years ago, also roughly the same time as the dinosaur extinction, which could have also set off environmental changes, which eventually helped kill off the dinosaurs. No one's saying that the cosmic impact and these uh, Deccan traps are mutually exclusive, however. They could have all contributed to this mass extinction. In the end, all of those things happened 65 million years ago-ish, give or take a few million years. That is too far in the past to take that DNA and then clone it using our techniques. We can clone extinct animals, animals that existed more recently. You know, if the rhino goes extinct, we could potentially clone more rhinos. However, it wouldn't work with dinosaurs. Let me explain why. 
DNA is the building block of life. You know, it, it tells cells how to divide, it tells them how to multiply, it builds the whole body plan of every organism. It's billions upon billions of pieces of data. And when an organism dies, the soft tissues is where the DNA lives, and they break down and are eventually destroyed. But it's not just the tissues where the DNA is, it's also the DNA itself that degrades, it breaks down. In some cases, parts of dead animals and plants are buried and preserved as fossils in such a way that the soft tissues are preserved, but even if you can extract DNA from well-preserved fossils, which has been done, there are only small sections of DNA. It's not a whole DNA molecule. And without the whole molecule, you can't just throw frog DNA in there and call it good. Short segments of fossilized DNA give us valuable information about the relationship of an extinct animal to a modern living relative, but not enough information to take that DNA and clone the animal. But even if dinosaur genomes were available, like let's say we could clone a dinosaur, which we can't because they died too long ago. Even if they were available, where would you put a dinosaur? What would it eat? How would you raise one? What would dinosaur habits be like? Do they live in a herd? Do they live alone? Do they need to hunt? Do they need to do certain things? Do they need to eat certain things in order to survive? We don't know. We've never been able to see a living dinosaur. Without an ecosystem to support this ancient creature, and remember, most things died during the KT mass extinction, we wouldn't be able to help this dinosaur survive. We wouldn't know what enzymes it needed. We wouldn't know what nutrients it needed. Modern plants, you couldn't just put one out in a field and say, like, go eat a tree. Modern plants are different than the plants from the period of the Cretaceous. Modern plants have evolved defenses against most herbivores today, and that includes toxins which could impair an animal that hasn't adapted to them. Think of it like aliens who encounter disease. If you took ancient people and you brought them forward, our flu might kill them, and vice versa. Even if you could clone a dinosaur, it might be harder to have them live here than it was to have them live at the end of the Cretaceous. So even if we could bring them back, which we can't, they'd probably all die anyway because they wouldn't be able to live in the modern world. It's hard, you know, in the 21st century. Is there another way that we could bring back animals that could survive? Yeah, there is. Alan Grant, paleontologist fictional in Jurassic Park, said that in 1993 when the movie came out, that dinosaurs may have more in common with modern-day birds than they do reptiles. And at the time, that was pretty controversial. The people in the movie started laughing at them. The little kid called it a six-foot turkey. But this is actually real. Like, even in the early 90s, paleontologists, like one of my faves, Jack Horner, he's great, were saying things like this. Because when you look at the bones of these ancient animals, they look more like the bones that we still have today flying around our skies and sitting on some of our dinner tables. Chicken bones. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? Dinosaurs is the right answer. Researchers estimate the half-life of DNA, the point of which half of the bonds of DNA would be broken, similar to radioactivity. You know, when half the DNA is broken down, that's the half-life. That is 521 years. So when the dinosaur dies, 65 million years later, 
there's not a lot of DNA left. And in fact, if you do the math under the best conditions, DNA would only last about 6.8 million years. And that's literally the best. And you're going to have it you know, be just such a small amount of DNA by that time. It's incredibly unlikely that we will find DNA that we could use to clone a dinosaur. But we're not going to clone them, as you probably found out if you were here earlier. The ethics of cloning a dinosaur is also complicated. We should really just do a cloning week. Tell us in the comments if you want us to do cloning week. But we don't actually need to clone dinosaurs. If the chicken is a dinosaur, why don't we just turn the dinosaur, well, the chicken, into a dinosaur? If the chicken is a dinosaur, why don't we just devolve it back into a dinosaur? Birds have the same defining characteristics as dinosaurs. There's the hole in the hip. The top of the femur has a knob which sticks out to the side that fits in the hip socket of the pelvis. The hip socket has a hole in the center. This supports the weight of the body on the legs. Maybe you remember this. They also share a three-toed foot. This is where the middle finger of the toe is the longest. They have an S-shaped neck. They've got wishbones. Dinosaurs had wishbones too. They had breastbones, crescent-shaped wrists. Dinosaurs shared all these things with modern birds. They also have today feathers. Dinosaurs probably also had feathers. Jack Horner told me when I interviewed him, unfortunately, I didn't interview him with a microphone because I'm a dummy, but he told me that chances are the reason they didn't have dinosaurs in Jurassic Park movies that went on and on and on is because they had to maintain a consistent story. It didn't have to be scientifically accurate. It's a story. It's a movie. But in reality... Paleontologists have known for a while now that dinosaurs probably had feathers, even rudimentary ones. In 2010, Michael Benton of the University of Bristol found color banding preserved in dinosaur fossils and melanosomes, which are the organelles that make pigments in feathers. And it showed that the feathers that they had on the dinosaurs that they found had stripes of light and dark, similar to the stripes you would see in a modern bird flying around today. A team led by Mary Higby Schweitzer of North Carolina State University conducted more tests and revealed the presence of a collagen in T. rex remains, and the collagen was then tested with an antibody that would normally react to chicken collagen, and the antibody reacted, indicating a similar molecular identity, because antibodies are specifically designed to only go after certain things. So it shouldn't react to T. rex remains antibodies if it wasn't related to the chicken antibody or chicken collagen. It shouldn't react to T-Rex collagen unless it's related somehow to the chicken collagen, at least molecularly. So today we still have dinosaurs. We just, you know, eat them and they live on farms and stuff. But Jack Horner is working hard to de-evolve a chicken into a dinosaur. Technically, Horner believes that chickens have dormant DNA. And if activated, that DNA could take over developing the chicken into some dinosaur mix, essentially. So if you think of the billions of letters of code in a DNA strand, some of those are active and some of those are not. If we can turn on the switches that were dinosaur active and turn off some of the chicken switches, we should get something akin to a modern day dinosaur. So let me give you some examples. When a chicken is developing, inside of the egg. 
its hands resemble more of what you would see in a raptor claw. It's, you know, the three fingers with the middle being the longest, but eventually the gene turns on and fuses all of those together, and that becomes their wings instead of their arms. And if that gene never gets switched on during development, then voila, we've got a chicken dinosaur. Bird embryos still grow dinosaur-like tails when they're in the egg before they absorb that structure. It's through a process called resorption, makes sense. And a crew studying geckos is learning how to turn that off so it doesn't get resorbed. If that happens, we'd end up with a chicken that has the claws and also the tail. And Harvard Medical School's Matthew Harris found that chicken embryos can be switched with little genetic switches to grow teeth, crocodile-like cone-shaped teeth inside of a chicken's mouth. All of those things, leftover traits from when they were dinosaurs. The last steps that we would have to do then, if we have a tail, we have teeth, we've got claws, the dinosaurs had feathers, so we don't have to worry too much about that. All we need now are the arms. We don't have a plan for the arms yet. We still have to figure that out. There's DNA in there somewhere. We just have to find it. But this answers... The 65-million-year-old question, dinosaurs obviously tasted like chicken because they are chickens. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat a chicken slash dinosaur for dinner, and it's going to be great. Seriously, though, go watch the YouTube video, Chicken Walking with an Artificial Tail. I don't know why it looks like it has, you know, a plunger on its butt. But if you look at it this way, it looks like a dinosaur. Just use your imagination. It's super interesting. This isn't some pipe dream. Jack Horner, paleontologist, says, from a quantitative point of view, we're about 50% of the way there. That's crazy. Dinosaurs capture our imaginations. This is one of the things that they do. Because they're big, they are ancient, we will probably never see a dinosaur alive, at least not the ones we're digging up as fossils. The fossils are so massive, and they create such a delight when you see them that we give them names, we fight over them, we buy and sell them for millions of dollars. Ever since we're kids, people memorize dinosaur names. They learn all about these things. We make movies about them. We've been doing that since movies began. Some of the first movies were about dinosaurs because we loved them and we've loved them for so long. And yet, if we could de-evolve a chicken into a dinosaur... It wouldn't be the same, right? Wouldn't feel the same. Something different about it. I think we kind of love the idea that we'll never see these again. That way they live more in our imaginations than they do in our real life. And that's pretty cool because imagination is awesome. Was that a whirlwind or what? I wonder if you could go back in time and tell 2015 me that there would be two more Jurassic Park movies before 2018, how I'd feel. How do you feel? Let us know over on Twitter. I'm at Trace Dominguez. We are at Seeker. You can find more science from Seeker wherever you are social media up these days. Instagram, we got it. We're hip. Twitter, totally. Facebook, yeah, we're oldish, so we definitely have it. I hope you loved this episode. If you did, leave us a rating. Share us with your friends. Thanks again for listening. I'm Trace Dominguez. I'll be back next week with the science of something really cool, trust me, probably from space. It's space. I just know it is. I can feel it. 